0: Each week, we take a moment, sit down, and talk about things going on at the road in
1: what we call the Road Detour.
0: Hey, Road family, welcome to the Road Detour. And I have a very special guest that I'm just going to be really honest with you about. I don't know a lot about his story. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, I remember the day I went to shake your hand, and I didn't even know you were fighting anything, man. Mm -hmm. And you reached up with your, what would it be, your left left hand. yeah? And I'm like... What's up? And and learn something about you yeah. that day. But then I have uh, got to know your family just a little bit and 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 recognize that you're doing some stuff that looks a lot like Jesus.
1: Well, good. And yeah. uh, so we're gonna start at the beginning, man. Cool. Tell me where you're born. Sure. So I'm from Hera. Well, I originally was in Oklahoma City. My family moved to Hera uh, when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, got into high school. Met my wife, Shelly. Uh, my parents drove us on our first date. I know that's crazy, but you know I was too young to drive. <laughs> Dated through high school, um, we uh, both went to Oklahoma State. Uh, then I got a degree. Cowpokes. Yeah, Yeah, Then I got a degree in industrial engineering and uh, went to work in Oklahoma City as an engineer for five years at Lucent Technologies. Uh, Shelly was an elementary teacher. And then we uh, got pregnant with our oldest son, Camden. She I got a teaching. question for you. Yeah. Pause,
0: because this is just flying by the seat of her yeah. pants. Would you score on your ACT?
1: Well, uh, so that's, that's the big story for me. I, uh, I took the ACT 18 times in high school.
0: 18 so, times. Yeah. Hold on. Hold so, on. Yeah.
1: So I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's I know. Great. It's probably the record. But uh, no, I, t- I went from a 19 to a 32, which is the equivalent of a 34 today. So uh, the scale has changed. So I've so I awesome. so i I've taught high school students how to take the ACT test. I knew that's what you do now. Years. Yes, yeah, yeah, so that's my primary job. I've been doing that for 30 years now. Travel to a different high school every day. I'll be in Lake Hamilton, Arkansas tomorrow, and I'll be at OSU OKC on Thursday. But anyway, uh, so do that uh, every day. That's my primary job. Um, I also started a video replay company. Uh, I did this 10 years ago. I was coaching high school football at Christian Heritage, and uh, they changed the rule to let you use iPads on the sidelines. So... I go to our coaches. And I'm like, listen, if they're going to let us do that, if I figure out a way to get that video in quick side, enough, yeah, turn it around, would we use it? And they were like, yes. Can you do that? And I'm like, guarantee it. So we were the first school in the country to do it. Oh my and gosh, I know. And so we uh, we you built, copyrighted that or something, didn't you, man? It's hard to copyright a replay, right? Okay. So we tried to, and you could. So all these people start copying anyway. So we built that up, and so now we primarily do that um, in college. We, we have some high schools that still do it, but we primarily do college sports. Um, so if they ever, if they ever challenge a call and they go look at the the booth, um, they're probably using, uh, something called DV sport or they're probably using us echo replay. And so we do that with, uh, with college sports. And then, uh, now we work with the U S Navy SEALs. So we got a contract where the sole provider for video replay for the U S Navy SEALs. So, uh, so if you go to Coronado right now and you're at the Navy SEAL training center and they're in there clearing rooms and shooting each other. And then they go to the monitor. They'll be looking at yeah, our system. is so. what you did
0: wrong. That's what you did right. Yeah, That's
1: it. That's it. So that's kind of the story of what I do anyway. And tell me when mm-hmm. you met Jesus, started following Jesus. Well, I, I grew up in church. My mom was a music pastor um, for years and years and years. Um, I, I wish I had that one moment that I could tell you about. Uh-huh. Um, I, I didn't really have that. Um, just I have followed Jesus my whole life. Uh, that,
0: that's the advantage of a Christian home. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And, and again, you can come up in Christian home. It doesn't mean the transition's easy. You still may have a moment, but equal playing field Christian home puts you
1: miles and miles ahead, brother. Well, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm miles thankful miles for my ahead. mom and dad. Yeah. So grew up in church my whole life. Um, Shelly and I were actually the kids pastors at Hereford Assembly of God for 10 years. We, uh, I married uh, the pastor's daughter. Her dad was the pastor of Herifers Assembly for 30 years. And so anyway. Oh my uh, goodness.
0: Yeah. I think I have a crazy story. Uh-oh. I hope I got this right. Did they come over here for our special marriage? They did. Marriage yeah, they did. I, so, how old are they? Oh, 75. Okay. So, yeah, got, I got to tell this. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, Wednesday night at church, and we're doing our marriage series yeah. and we're doing one on sex and intimacy. And there's this senior adult couple out there. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we're going to run these people off. <laughs> I didn't know who they were. It's like, so as soon as the service is over, man, I'm running down there and I'm going, look, every service is not like this. <laughs> and they looked at me and said, oh no. This is why we came. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah, that, that was a great series, man. We always uh, have enjoyed that. Shelly and I have been going here to Choctaw Road for three years, right at three years now, and just uh, really, really love it. i um, really thankful for the church. So talk to me about your family life. Yeah. So Shelly and I um, have two biological kids, and that uh, Camden is 24, uh, runs his own little landscape construction company. He started with a partner. Our daughter, Casey. Dude, how old are you? So I'm 49. My wife is 50. Uh, you you aged yeah. well. Oh, I'm t- come on now. Keep talking. <laughs> All right. But um, so my, uh, my oldest son, 24. My daughter, Casey, 22, 21, 22. She's in nursing school uh, at Oshio KC's nursing school. So you know, Pastor, we uh, went through that life of you know four people, and uh, you know, just they grew up six, seven, eight years old. And I mean, life was good. I mean, I made pretty good money. Uh, we were doing a lot of great things. I mean. Listen, we were very active in the church. We gave, we, uh, but we spent a lot too. Um, we saved a lot, but, um, but we were very giving. But it was just kind of us four. And, you know, what happened was growing up, and I hate to admit this, but I'm, I just got to be transparent. This wouldn't be real if it wasn't transparent. I was very anti-missions. I didn't like missions. I didn't like that we did missions. Um, I, 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 I would say the line, why are we helping people there when we should be helping yeah, people Lots here? of people here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why are we doing that? Uh, I remember there was a, a big week-long revival the Assemblies of God would do every year. And one night was missions night. We would not go on missions night. I'm mean, like, no, we are not going. So what happened was That's is... interesting. Yeah, I know. And so I, I, I was just very opposed to that. And so we did a lot of giving here. Well, what happened was it was, I think God really started working on my heart. Just kind of softening me a little bit to that. And years ago, it was about 2008, Rod and Nancy Vernon, who uh-huh. here, at, mm-hmm. uh, they're our best friends, wonderful people, you know, Grace and Emma Vernon, and Grace and K- my daughter Casey were best friends, and so they invited us to a concert up in Tulsa, Stephen Curtis Chapman, um, Michael W. Smith concert. Michael W. Smith got up there and started talking about Compassion International, and about how you sponsor kids, and how you can like meet your kids, and um, I, I, I was just kind of like, wow, this sounds different. And so I told Shelly, I said, hey, I just want to go to that booth. I just want to kind of see what that is. And I I take my son Camden down there and we look at the booth and we start talking to him. I'm like, so is this real? Like, I mean, like this kid's really going to be helped. Mm -hmm. You know, because I was so skeptical. Yeah. I'm that way. I'm that guy. I didn't trust anybody with this stuff. And I remember I went back to Shelly and I said, hey, listen, this sounds different. And I said, I'm kind of feeling pulled. Like maybe we should sponsor a kid. And she just looked at me. She goes, I am too. I think we should. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to do it. So we sponsored um, two kids. And two years later, it's 2010, late 2009, we, uh, 2010, we uh, decided to take our family to Kenya to meet our sponsored kid. So we go to Kenya to meet our sponsored kid. And Casey is nine. Camden is 10, 11. And we spend a week in Kenya. Now, first time, this is the first time we've ever been to poverty in the world. I mean, first time in our mm-hmm. lives we've ever been to mm-hmm. poverty. Okay, I, I, We know nothing, right? And one day of the trip, they tell us, they say, hey, um, be prepared tomorrow. We're going to go off-road. And we're going out into the bush, and and so, you know, whatever. So we get in these four-by-fours, and they drive us three hours out in the middle of the Masai Mara. Now, Pastor, when we get out here, they take us on these home visits, and I'm going to tell you now, I saw poverty like I didn't even know existed, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, kids that literally were dying, right? And we you know, I'm just Dev's saying now, they, they told us before we went, they said, be very careful with your girls because girls have a little value here. They'll marry girls as early as nine. My daughter's nine. You know, I mean, if a warrior wants the girl, it's I his. Her, yeah. yeah. And so they told me to be very careful with the girls, keep them close. And we're in this village for, I don't know how long it was, but I'm just overwhelmed with emotion, right? And I mean, these these kids, like every orifice is just covered in flies. These kids are dying. And I remember I asked the compassion worker there, I said, listen, what is the death rate of these kids? And he said, well, we're really not sure, but we estimate right here where you're at, about 40% will die by five. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if that was the real number, but I know that's what he said. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at these faces. I had no reason to disbelieve it. And I'm just overwhelmed with emotion. And pastor, I mean, it's like all these things coming back in my mind, like, whoa what have I been doing, right? Mm-hmm. And why have I said some of the things I've said? And uh, hmm. so we go through some homes, whatever, and uh, Shelly's missing. I can't find her. And no one can find her. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And I'm, I'm getting chills telling her right now because it's so real to me, that moment going back, I can't find her. And everyone, you know, I'm like, have you seen Shelly? No one can find her. And then finally someone says, I thought I saw her go back to the four by fours. So trying not to make a scene, I go as fast as I can in the four by four and I I can't find her. And I'm just praying, God, I have taken my wife out of this country for the first time to come here and she is gone. And I walk around to the backside of the four by four and there was Shelly sitting in the dirt of the Serengeti, leaning against that tire, just sobbing. And I remember I got down in that dirt with her and I just held her and we both just sobbed. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long it was, minute, maybe two. Uh, It's the most impactful moment in my Christian life. She grabbed me by the collar. I'll never forget it. She pulled me right up against her face and just, I mean, just sobbing. And she said, no child should live like this. She said, somebody's got to do something. Now, as a man, as a man, that's a tough thing to hear from your wife because we're such solutionists, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. We see a problem. It's like, I want to fix that. Right. And that's one of the big things that we got to learn as Christian men, that we are not the solution, right? And
0: I, I remember I said... Stop for a yeah. second. Say that again. That needs some emphasis.
1: We, as Christian men, we've got to remember we are not the solution, right? God is a solution. It, it's like this. I tell my son all the time with this. He's got married. He's been married a year and a half and they have a baby now. I tell my oldest son, I say, Camden, she is not a problem to be solved. Remember wow. that. She's not a problem to be solved. And I got that from John Eldridge at Wild at Heart. But Wild at Heart,
0: one of my favorite books. Yeah,
1: I said, she's not a problem to be solved. You are a solutionist, man. If there's a problem, you want to fix it. Don't try to fix your wife. Try to learn how to let God fix your marriage. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's so good. So I remember when she grabbed my collar and held me at her nose and said that, I, I said to her, and I, I, I remember word for word what I said. I said, I have no idea how to fix this but I promise we'll do something. And I think that's a big step for Christians, you know, just to say, hey, this is beyond me.
0: So, so we say do for one what you wish you could do for all.
1: Yeah, do something. Yep. And I, I will tell you now, I was messed up after that trip. I was really messed up. I, I came home and, um, you know, our, our headmaster hmm. at Christian Heritage, he, he asked me about it and he said, uh, and I told him, I said, man, I'm messed up. I said, I'm in bad shape. And he said, you want to sell everything, don't you? And I said, yes. And he said, you gotta ask yourself, did God make a mistake? Did he make a mistake having you here? And I said, Well, I don't think so. And he said, now you gotta ask God, why? Why am I here and what do you want to do with me? So that was the big change in our lives. That that really was the moment where it where everything inside of us was broken, and it was broken for the good. Mm-hmm. And so uh, from there, we did a big Water of Life project. We went back to that village. Rod and Nancy went back with us and the girls, and we did a big project where we... Uh, Put a well on the, the ground. All through, well, we did it all through the local church, actually. They, these these people in the Mara, they would not go to a well. They go to that river and they drink out of it. They, and even when we were there, they're like, you don't want just drink that water. It well, it's killing you, man. Yeah. But they, you know. So what we did is we did uh, Compassion Water of Life water filters that yeah. each home got, and then they used that as their ministry. And so... It, it was an amazing thing. We, um, we, we took $81,000 worth of buckets over there, and it was just amazing. We built a, a monument at the river, and mm. so we would never forget You know what God had done. Right. right. And it's still there. You can still see it on Google Earth, that monument right there by the river. So after that, then it was, okay, now what? Right? So that's when Shelly and I said, hey, maybe, maybe there's more for our family. And so that's when we decided that we would adopt. And so that kind of transitions us into the, into the next phase of the story. And you got how many kids now, brother? I got eight, eight Eight. kids total. Yeah. So, you know, we started with Russia. We had some friends that adopted from Russia. So we started, we said, okay, we'll adopt from Russia. And we wanted to adopt girls because we knew girls were in really bad shape that came out of orphanages. So we started that. We get a year and a half into it and Putin decides no adopted kids can leave his country or none can go to the United States. And it closed so when it closed that was a really hard moment you know we really felt like god had taken us there but it was okay god then then what so we decided to go with the democratic republic of congo it's one of the poorest countries in the entire world um it's uh it's in south central africa huge country the capital city is kinshasa uh you go out of kinshasa it becomes very lawless it's very dangerous Uh, yeah border niger now, that I don't know. Um, I do know it, it touches the ocean. The Congolese River comes into
0: it. Um, sounds like we, we've been doing some mission stuff with a group in Niger, and it
1: sounds a lot like. Okay, because you get out, you get out. This is where like Joseph Coney, if you've heard of him, is where he operated. I mean, this is a, it's just lawless. So, but in Kinshasa, we, um, we decided to adopt from Kinshasa. Um, again, we were going to adopt two girls. Um, we get notified by our agency that a boy and a girl twins came available. Um, and so, uh, we went ahead and agreed to do that. So we go to, um, we go to Congo, we go to Kinshasa to meet them. And before we went, they had asked us, um, we, we get a little ways into it and, uh, a little ways into that adoption process. And, and, and we're going to go to Kenya, but right, or go to, uh, Kinshasa, but right before we go, the agency contacts us and says, listen, um, we have another girl that just came available for adoption and her paper's just cleared. She needs a family. And if you guys would be willing to adopt another with these two, um, we could get that done and you could adopt all of them together. Now Congo had a rule. You can only have four, you could only have four kids in your home. Don't ask me why. So we had two, we were adopting two that made four, but if you were adopting two to get to your four, they'd let you bring a third with them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the agency lady says, we're not supposed to do this. We're going to send you a picture, though, and just let you see her, and then you make your decision. And she was supposed to be five, and uh, so anyway, they send the picture. And we look at this little girl, and we're just like, you know, man, she looks older than that. And so we start having all these discussions. So we sent it to some people, had them look at the picture, had them, some people that knew, you know, teeth and all that, like, mm-hmm. no, nah, and we determined that she probably was more like nine or 10. Okay, now, Pastor, the story I'm about to tell you is, is one of the hardest stories that I tell about our whole adoption process. But you're, I think you'll appreciate it because it'll show you the transparency of mistakes, how difficult this, this process was. We talk about how it might be difficult for our kids to bring in one that's older. We talk about the difficulty of the twins and, and how maybe she's not a right fit for our family. And I remember we had the discussion, like, where would she sleep? And where's the right place in our home? And, and we knew we were going to adopt more at some point, but they're like, so we just made this decision. No, she's not a right fit for our family. So when I went to, when we were in Kinshasa, um, one thing that I did while I was there is I would go to orphanages And I would set up these water filters for them like we had done in Kenya Mm because that was one of the big issues. And so I would set up these filters. So they tell us that we're going to, that they were going to take me to an orphanage called Kolk. And when we're driving to Kolk, now I want you to just visualize it with me. We're driving on these dirt roads. It felt like we went for hours, raw sewage canals running on both sides, kids everywhere. And all these kids are sick. The heat is oppressive. There are people drinking out of the raw sewage. There are adults even bathing in the raw sewage. It is death. Mm -hmm. I I am so overwhelmed by this. And we drive to this orphanage called Kolk, and we get out and when we start to walk in, I remember I walked in this corridor and on the right side there is this dark room. I'm talking just like this giant dark room and there is nothing, no furniture. There was a couple of plastic chairs. No toys, no nothing. There's about a hundred kids. And all you see are some whites of eyes. Mm -hmm. It is worse than anything you could imagine that all these kids are dying, every one of them. And they're just staring at you. And again, it's that overwhelming feeling of me, how I believed, why do we do missions? Like, why would we do this? And I go back to the back room and they've got their water bucket and I've got a little drill bit. I'm gonna drill it by hand. I'm gonna drill a hole in this to install it. And when I'm drilling this, this, this little girl just comes back to the back room and stands like just maybe 10 feet over from me. She's in a little white dress, just dirty, sick, and just stares. Out of 100 kids, this one girl just stands right there and stares. Mm-hmm. And I'm just cranking on this bucket. And I'm, cr- I'm just sweating. I mean, I'm miserable. And I'm overwhelmed with emotion about all this death. And I'm thinking about my life. I'm like, God, what you brought us in. I'm just cranking on this bucket. She's just staring at me. And then it just hit me. It's her. It was her. It was a little girl we'd said no to. Pastor. I, I just I just broke, man. I just broke. And I was like, God, I remember I started repeating out loud. We thought she was too old. She wasn't the right fit. Where was she going to sleep? And it just hit me over and over like, no, she's going to sleep here. Listen, there were kids in this orphanage that drug themselves on their bottom because they didn't have any furniture to ever build their muscles to pull up and stand. There were kids that they would lay on the side that they would put them there to die. It was a place to put kids to die. And this little girl was there. And our adoption agency lady was sitting over there. And I looked up at her and I said, Debra, is this her? And she just dropped her head.
0: She's going home with you, isn't she?
1: (laughs) She couldn't. She couldn't. Oh, my goodness. She couldn't. And so Uh, I asked Debra, I said, I finished. And I said, could I give her a hug? And she said, oh, yeah. She just kind of touched her. And that little girl came over and she just held me. I just cried, mm. I just cried. And, um, and we left. We, act, we actually asked if, uh, later, we asked if we could adopt all 100 kids out of that orphanage. They didn't let us, but that's, <laughs> anyway. So, <clears throat> so, um, so anyway, um, we finished our work there. Our kids, um, it's time for Clarity and Creed to come home. Um, and uh, Pastor, or, uh, uh, President Kabila declares, no adopted kids can leave his country. Just like before. So uh, the numbers are rough here. It's about 30 US families with 50 adopted kids. We buy a home down the road from the president, move all our kids in. We hire six full-time nannies, a house dad, and put in Congolese internet. And wow. our kids live there. And we pay for it, all these families pay for it. And we'll travel over, we would travel over and stay with them for a week or two. And so um, we're spending astronomical money. I mean, like, you can't even imagine how much money we're spending. This is 2014, 15, and early 16. In 2015 alone, we spent over $100,000. I mean, like, we're because by then, we're starting the Ugandan process of adoption. We're paying here. We find out later it's a, there's a huge embezzlement scandal going on in this mm-hmm. whole thing. And we get dead broke. And now when I tell you dead broke, I'm talking like everything. Like, we are broke. And so what happens is we get to... Um, It was the fall of 2015. Our Congolese kids have been stuck for almost two years. Our Ugandan kids, um, the three from Uganda that we're adopting, we get get right up to the point that it's time to where we got to make like final decision. The problem is we have two kids in our home now. We're waiting on two from Congo. And now we've got three from Uganda. They're supposed to come home. The Congolese law says you only have four kids in your home. So the agency calls us and says, listen, you got to make a decision. Mm. If you bring the three home from Uganda and then Congo opens up and you have to go to court, you lose your Congolese kids. Even though you met them and you Skype with them every Sunday.
0: You need the Congo kids going first.
1: Or you can go ahead and take the three Ugandan kids or you can tell you Ugandan kids go back to the street. Or you can take the Ugandan kids and hope it works out. What would you do, Pastor? I'm serious. This was the exact yeah. dilemma I was in in August, 2015. What would you do?
0: Yeah. That, that's uh, the between the rock and a hard place, brother. Yeah.
1: So again, full transparency. I told Shelly, we got to let the Ugandan kids go back to the street. I said, we've adopted these two from Congo. They know us as mom and dad. We've been over there. They've seen us. Mm. They know us. I said, we got to, we can't, we can't take that chance. And she said, well... She said, I disagree. She said, uh, I believe God knew all along. I believe God knew we'd be at this point. And I don't think it's a surprise to him. And she said, I think we just be dependent upon God. And that had been our motto that whole year, be fully dependent on God. And and, uh, she said, I think we bring the young kids home and hope it works out. And she said, if it doesn't, we'll support them until they're 18 and then fly them home. And but she said, I think, I think God brought... And, and I remember she said to us, she said, God kind of showed us that with the one girl from Kolk. Mm-hmm. When kids are brought in to us, we need to, we need to step out and take them. So I said, okay, that's what we'll do. So we, so we tell the agency we're going to bring the Ugandan kids home. All right. So we get to the end of August and we have to pay $30,000 to the Ugandan government to finalize that part of the adoption to make it happen. Again, now, we were broke. We had spent so much money in this that we didn't have, we didn't have 30000 So the deadline keeps coming. Shelley keeps saying, hey, are we going to make it? We had $10,000 at the end of August. Now, what I want you to understand here is not a soul knew that we were broke. I get asked a lot when I tell this story. I've spoken at church, told this story, and people ask, why didn't you tell? <clears throat> Shelley and I were the only ones. Our parents didn't know. Cameron and Casey didn't know. No one knew. We were dead broke and at this point of desperation. And there's a lot of reasons. One, we felt like it was our decision to do it. It was nobody else's responsibility. It was ours. Two, I'd read Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. Mm-hmm. He never asked for money. God always provided at that moment it was needed. And I was believing God could provide. So we get to the end of August and we're $10,000. We're $20,000 short. We don't have the money. And uh, I, uh, I called the agency and I said, hey, we can't do it. And I said, is there any way we can get an extension? And they said, we'll give you a one-month extension. Or they contact the Ugandan government, get a one-month extension. She calls me. She says, there will not be another extension. You got to pay $30,000 in next month. The whole next month, we're trying to get ahead, but we're spending so much on Uganda and Congo and we're not making any ground. So we get a week out from our payment and we're still at $10,000. And Shelly keeps asking me, you know, how we? And I'm like, I don't know, but we got to pray God provides. God's got to provide. Now, I told you at the beginning, I work with high school students on the ACT test. So when I travel to a high school, students will pay by the student. They'll pay $30 a student. that come to my class. And so, you know, that, that's how we make our living. Well, um, my assistant calls me and says, Chad, you're going to Anson, Texas tomorrow. And I don't do workshops that far away in the fall because I coached high school football at CHA. And I said, well, why did I agree to that? She said, I don't know. You did, though, and you're going tomorrow, so tell coach Mm -hmm. you're going to miss practice. I'm like, okay. So she uh, calls me back later, and she says, hey, they tell me you're going to have a big group tomorrow. This is is six days out from my $30,000 payment. She says, you're going to have a big group tomorrow. Now, schools will tell me that, which is great. I mean, like 30 kids show up, which is great. I ain't complaining, right? But she says... counselor says, bring everything you got. So I'm like, okay, whatever. So I pack everything up. Now this is a five hour drive. It's <laughs> a five hour drive to Anson, Texas, It's in the middle of cotton fields in West Texas, just North Abilene, cotton fields all around it. I've been going there for years and the whole time, four and a half hours, I'm talking about a prayer now of God, you know, we have given, you know, we didn't do this selfishly. You know, we're trying to follow the gospel. You know, we're trying to love people. That's the only reason why we chose to adopt. We didn't do any of this selfishly. Uh, and I'm like, God, you know that. I'm like, God, you've got to come through. No one knows our desperation. And, it, and for five hours of that, of that drive, it was that. It was that prayer, like, God, I'm desperate. Please, God, I know you're real. I've lived for you my whole life. I know you're real. But I need you to show up and big. I walked into that high school, and I remember they told me we we're going to be in the auditorium today. Schools have told me that in the past, no big deal. I go down to the auditorium, I go to the front, and I start setting up my projector and stuff. And I remember as I'm setting up out of the front left of my peripheral vision, I noticed that these kids start coming in and like start filling, and I'm talking filling like every seat. And I remember just kind of going, what is going on? This has never happened. I'm like, what is going on? And the counselor comes down in a panic. She says, listen, did you bring more stuff? I said, I brought everything I had. She said, "Go to your car. Get everything you've got. We got busloads pulling in." <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, "Busloads?" She said, "Busloads." And I walked out to my car, and Pastor, I am not making this up. Bus after bus after bus is pulling into that little school's in the middle of Texas. In the middle of west, Texas. I am just overwhelmed. Like God, what are you accomplishing right now? And I walk back in that auditorium, the whole thing fills. Now I remember I'd been doing the workshop 24 years at that time. The largest group I'd ever had was 310 students. And I got a whole auditorium filling. And I'm five days now from a payment. The whole auditorium fills. It's time to start. I am crying, literally at the front crying. I call the counselor, the superintendent, the principal, and I said, listen, I can't start. I got to tell you my testimony. And I said, we are five days away from $20,000, a $30,000 payment. I got 10, I'm 20,000 short. The Ugandan government, or my three kids go back and we can't pay it. And I said, look at this. And the counselor, I remember she just started crying. She hugged me and she said, Chad, there are 642 paid kids in this auditorium right now. She said, wow. we'll mail you a check tomorrow. They mailed me a $19,000 check and we made that payment.
0: That's unreal, brother.
1: Yes. Unreal. Tell me God's not real. Yeah. I mean, tell me he didn't just pour something out that was just unreal. That's, that's incredible. So we made that payment. We get to January and uh, Shelly goes to Uganda to bring the Ugandan kids home. Okay. Um, so she goes to Uganda to bring the Ugandan kids home. They go through all the process. I'm trying to work, trying to pay all this. She gets, uh, it's, th- listen now, I, it's just the craziest thing ever, but all the paperwork finishes everything. We go, she goes to the U.S. Embassy to get the stamp to bring the Uganda kids home, and the U.S. Embassy rejects the adoption. The U.S. Embassy says, no, we don't believe their story. Now, Shelley had come down with malaria and got really sick in Uganda, and she was really, I mean, like, got really bad. She gets better from the malaria, but is still really sick. And they, they refuse the adoption and they tell her they're going to do their own investigation. And she says, what does that mean? They said, well, um, we're going to go to the village. We're going to find anyone we can. We're going to find out if these kids really are orphans. And, and um, she says, well, what do I do? And they said, we well, have to stay. And she says, how long? And they, and they were kind of jerks about it. They're like, until we finish. And she's like, well, how long is that? They said it could be next week, could be next month, could be next year, but you'll stay. And the agency tells her she has to stay. Now, she is deathly sick, though. And so um, she calls me. I remember I was standing in my kitchen. She calls, and she says, she's crying, and she's like, they rejected it. They say I got to stay. Everybody says I got to stay, but I'm just so sick. And I said, listen, you got to fly home. I said, I don't care what they said. You got to fly home and get well. We can always go back. And she's just bawling, and I I remember it so vividly, she just said, you know we can't afford a ticket home. Because we, I mean, it was everything we had to fly Mm -hmm. her and the kids home. And she said, you know we can't afford it. And I said, well, you're not gonna believe this. Evidently, Rod and Nancy Vernon, I mean, they knew that we were struggling. We never told them, but we'd quit doing everything. And so they knew that we were in some financial trouble. Well, what we didn't know is they'd gone to some CHA families And it said, hey, I think the Cargill's are in trouble. And I think they need some help. And would you guys like to contribute, try to help them with their adoption? And I said, Shelly, I'm looking at the fridge right now, and there's a check that showed up in the mail today for $1,850. And I remember she's like, really? And I'm like, it is on the fridge right now. And I said, we can pay for your flight home. Fly home. And she just says, okay, I'm coming home. Fly her home. Two days later she's in the hospital. they can't figure out what's wrong. She got something in Uganda, and she's getting sick and more sick and more sick and they can't figure it out. The infectious disease doctor is testing for everything they can find and we get to two days later and uh, she's she's really bad i mean she's uh, I know that it's probably getting close now you know I remember. I remember at noon, the infectious disease doctor came in and I followed him out of that room and I said, doctor, you got to tell me the truth. I mean, no more, just honest. Is she going to die? And I remember he looked at me and he said, I don't know. He said, I don't think so, but I don't know. He said, I don't know what she has. And look, I kind of feel guilty even telling you this. I know you've been through, through this and I feel guilty even, even telling the story. But, uh, you know, I, it's about four, four thirty, and, and she was getting very still, like not hardly blinking anymore, laying there and I, I knew it was getting so close. And, and I had some real heart to hearts with God, right? And I, I remember, I, uh, I've written their story and I remember I started the whole thing with this line. I said, I poured my heart out to God and asked a question I didn't even know he could answer. I held her and you know, I asked God this, I said, God, how am I going to tell my kids you are good when their mom died adopting them? Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how I would do that, but I held her and I remember her movements got almost to nothing. And, uh, I got desperate. It was about 4.40, 4.45, and I remember holding her hands, and I, I just said, Shelly, if you, could, if you can hear me, please, nod. You know, nothing. I said, Shelly, if you can hear me, please, blink, and it was nothing. And I'm right over the top of her face, and I remember she just slowly just turned to the side and stared at the ceiling. And I, I remember I said four words. I just held her, and I said, okay, God, okay, God i I'd made a decision. God was good. And I walked out of the room as fast as I could. I was going to run for the nurse and the nurse was right there. And I said, you got to come down. she ran in the room, immediately called code blue, jumped up on top of Shelly, slapping her, trying to revive her. The code blue team scrambles in there. They mm-hmm. bear hugged me, pushed me out of the room. Um, it was homecoming that night. And our daughter was in homecoming and I called the school. I called the headmaster school and, and I just said, listen, I think Shelly just died. And, uh, he, he reminded me, God is good, and he prayed. And uh, about five minutes later, I hear, she's breathing, she's breathing. And they had revived her, and uh, they brought me back in the room, and she saw me. And uh, the cobalt blue doctor said, uh, he said, I don't know what's happened to her, but he said, um, I think she's got so much fluid and pressure built up on her brain that her brain stopped. And he said, I think she had just had a seizure that gave the appearance of death. Mm-hmm. And so he said, we're gonna rush her down to surgery. We're gonna drain this fluid off her brain and I uh, think she'll be okay. About an hour later, I'm sitting in the hallway here, bing, and they roll her out. And I just run to her and I grab her. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy you're okay. And she looked at me, she goes, why are you crying? <laughs> she didn't know anything. She didn't remember anything. So like when you asked her to come today, one reason why she's not here, she didn't remember a lot. Okay. She didn't remember a lot of any of it. and. Uh, a lot of what she remembers is just hearing my stories and just seeing pictures. And so it's very difficult for her to talk about it. She just doesn't know because her brain had to rewire all of it. There's a lot of our childhood. She doesn't remember now. Well, so the infectious disease doctor comes in the next day and, uh, well, uh, let's go back to, it was homecoming night. Right. And so, uh, uh, she's back in the room, she's doing great. And, uh, and so we tell the nurse that it's homecoming night and Casey's homecoming and Shelly's just doing great, and she didn't know anything, right? And she's like, well, why don't you go? You know, I'm like, I can't go. Like, I want to go. You just died, right? She's like, no, you should go. Casey needs you there. And I'm like, what? And so uh, I went out to the nurse station. I said, look, do you really think she's okay? And, and if I go, could I bring my daughter up here and some friends? And Because they had told us, you know, don't any noises or anything. And I said, could I do that just let her have homecoming at the hospital? <coughs> and uh, and me. that was good. And so uh, they were like, sure. So I go to homecoming, and uh, when I come back, Rod and Nancy— Bring Casey and Grace and Emma, and she's in her homecoming dress and the whole thing, and they walk her in, and we celebrate homecoming in the hospital room Goodness. together. And uh, so, yeah, it just uh, it's just amazing. Um, but uh, so she, yeah, obviously survived. And then, so the Ugandan kids come home in March, and then the Congolese kids come home in April. And so our kid, our family went from two kids to seven kids like instantly. They spoke two different languages and. Who, who,
0: and I'm going to embarrass myself. So maybe three weeks ago, I'm coming by, I say hi to your family. And yeah. And one of your boys reaches over and, and and wants a fist bump or handshake. I can't remember right. what it was. Right. So this past Sunday, we're in the lobby and you guys come through. Yeah. And, and he just, he's less locked on. Yeah. And we reach out and we did the fist bump. Yeah. Who, do you know who that is? Yeah.
1: Okay. So that is our little guy, Crosby. And, uh, you know, th- this is a, this is another just great thing to think about. You know, um, Crosby's special needs. So, so we walk,
0: and he's up there, and he turns around, and I I am not one hundred percent positive what he said, but I think he turned around and he yelled back at me, "I love you."
1: Oh, there's no question that he's an amazing kid.
0: Because I'm yeah. like, yeah, those moments
1: for me, man. Yeah, those are like undeserved. Yeah, uh, yeah. right. Wow. Crosby, is, uh, he, has the, he has the brain of a three-year-old. Um, he has intellectual disability. He has brain damage from malaria. You can see it on his, uh, on his scans. He has hemorrhages all in his brain. Uh, they believe that uh, the malaria, you know, he, he laid there in the dirt. Um, Kai, Kai raised them himself when he was four and five. So Kai was their sole provider for two years. I have pictures of them. And uh, uh, if I showed you, you'd gasp. Um, I got to meet the man who found them. They were in the dirt. He, he told us he knew our daughter Carly was dead and he, uh, and he tried to describe her. He know how to describe her, but we're talking like the railbone arms, mm-hmm. the sunk eyes, the swollen belly. And he said he walked over to her in the dirt and he lifted up her little arm to make sure she was dead and her eyes opened. And he said, evidently, she was so dehydrated and, and laid there so long, um, so still that he said when he lifted her up, her skin peeled off her body. And uh, it's, it, we have pictures of her in the hospital recovering. It's a miracle that she has that black mm. skin that's so beautiful again. It's a miracle that, she's, that it healed and uh, she's well. Um, she's healthy. Um, they, uh, they told us they believe that she was right on the verge of death, and, but she is healthy. And Crosby, um, he has autism, he has epilepsy, he has a lot of issues. And uh, uh, they, believe it, they believe he was probably a day or two maybe from dying, um, so he'll live with us forever. And that's okay. I mean, yeah. she's a great little kid. And uh, so, um, but anyway, they all come home. You know, they, they knew nothing. It was just, it, everything is just so funny with them because, I mean, even like a toilet. Pastor, they never used a toilet. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you teach boys? And, and like, just something as simple as like, this is where we're yeah. going to use the bathroom. And, 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 you, <laughs> and they don't know English. They had never washed their hands before. Um, you know, the, the first meal my wife made, she made a bowl of, of white rice with a baked chicken leg on top. And we set it out and it was clear my kids had never used eating utensils before, right? They're just diving in with their mm. hands. And, and uh, so they uh, were like, oh my gosh, you gotta get them outside. And so we kind of corral them up, get them outside. They brought back empty bowls. More food. If any, well, if anyone tells, ever tells you you'll choke on a chicken bone, it's not true. <laughs> I have no five bone. to prove it. Hmm? Like the whole thing disappears, it's legit. Mm. The second day we had corn on the cobs or meal, they ate the cobs. I didn't even know you could do that. They ate them. We boiled eggs; they ate the shells. Right? I mean, you got to realize they were scavengers. They were people. Like they didn't know. It's just so. Mm. So life just. We started having all these oh my gosh moments. You know what I mean? Like whoa, that just happened. Like I I remember. I remember. uh, um, Well, just. I remember Creed praying before bed one night. He was kneeled down by his bed and I was standing at his door listening. And and he said this, and I even made a little plaque of it at our house, but he said, Jesus, thank you for shirt in Congo. Me no have good shirt. Wow. I told my wife that night. I said, I've never one time in my life said, God, thank you. I have a shirt to put on. It's never even crossed my mind. I said, that boy meant it. Creed was selected to speak at his sixth grade elementary graduation last year. And, he comes home and he says, he's like, daddy, he said, the school has asked me to give a speech, you know? And he said, I don't know what to say. And I said, I said, great. I said, uh, have you ever told your friends your story of Congo? And he's like, no, I have not told them. And I'm like, I know their parents don't know. And I said, I think now would be a good time to tell them if you're comfortable doing that, tell them about Congo. And so he writes this amazing speech And I'll tell you some lines from it because I've told this line, I tell this in my workshop, so I can tell you these lines pretty easy, but uh, I'll give you some highlights of it. So he tells his friends this in the speech. He says, I remember Congo. He says, I was hungry. He said, every day I would search for food. There was no food. He said, I would go day after day, no food. He said, I would fight, I would steal. I would do anything. He said, I slept on the dirt. He said, the rats and the mice would eat my lips and my toes at night. He said, I was scared. And he tells his friend this line, his friends this line, which is one of the best lines I've ever heard in a speech. He said, well, many of you were here dreaming of what you would be when you grew up someday. He said, I was there dreaming of if I would live to the next day. Hmm. I know it struck me, struck that Mm -hmm. whole crowd. And then he transitions his speech and he says, I love America. I want to tell you about America. He said, I can't believe we eat every day here. He said, I can't believe we sleep on a bed. He said, I'd never had a bed. He said, I can't believe that we wear shoes. He said, none of us had owned a pair of shoes until we came to America. He tells his friends, I can't believe we go to school. He said, only the rich kids in my country got to go to school. And he tells his friends, he says, don't waste this life. Mm. Don't waste it. From Uh, a sixth grader. Yeah. What a great line, huh? like don't waste it I, I thought it was such a great speech it was just from his heart just about Congo and his life there and here and so, so anyway. I got a question for you yeah
0: how full is your cup
1: well it's 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 full it's tired though it's a tired cup it's, <laughs> it's, tired it's cup. loud in our house it's tiring and uh you know you would think after that that we would just be like well that's enough right um but we um uh, we, we decided after that that we, we wanted to adopt one more. And so the, uh, this, mm-hmm. this story is um, a little different in that um, we had read a, a book during our adoption process and it just had one little paragraph in the book where it mentioned frozen embryos. It's just one little paragraph about all the little frozen embryos in the world. And I remember, I asked Shelly, I remember I said, wait a minute, what was that? And she read that little paragraph again because she had, she had said, hey, listen to this. And I'm like, we almost did it in vitro. I never even considered that, right? Mm-hmm. And so we started researching this a little bit and then we found out there's over 1 million frozen embryos in the United States right now. Wow. And some have been frozen since the 1980s. So, you know, and a lot of us, you know, that may do in vitro or whatever, well, you know, when you're, when you've had your kids that you've built your family with and you have these, yeah, more leftover eggs, children, yeah, mm-hmm. leftover embryos, right? Because these yeah. fertilized, That's right? right? So these families get in these ethical dilemmas. What am I going to do with my kids? Because you've got three choices. You can keep paying your storage fees, which are expensive, thousands of dollars a year to keep them frozen. You can donate them to science, which has a very bad ending. They're going to grow them in that lab so long, and then they're going to do experiments on them. Or you can destroy them. Mm-hmm. And so these families are in these massive dilemmas. What do I do with my kids? So there's all these frozen embryos and more being added every day. Over a million just in the United States. So Shelly and I finally decided when Shelly was 45, I was 44, we, we decided, hey, um, we, we, need, we need to try to do this. I mean, <laughs> like Shelly and I said, if we really believe what we say to do about life, then we need to try to do something, right? Somebody needs to do something like something. I and mean, we can't save you know, a million, but maybe we could do something. Yeah. So we go to the national embryo donation center, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, they do tests on my wife and they figured out that at age 45, she was still healthy, able to carry and probably could carry and deliver safely. And so, um, we're like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to adopt frozen embryos. And, um, uh, we try to have some kids. That's amazing. Okay. So they say, All right, the first thing you got to do is you got to pick your embryos. And I remember Shelly immediately said, What do you mean? And they're like, Well, you'll get these profiles of the parents and you'll look at all the features and all this, and then you'll decide what embryos you want. And Shelly goes, We don't want to look. You pick. And the agency said, We can't. You have to. It's a, like a legal thing. Like they can't pick because if your child doesn't survive, mm-hmm. They said, you have to. And Shelly goes, well, what are we going to see? And they said, well, you'll know the mom's height and weight age. You'll know the dad's height and weight. You'll know what sports they played. You'll know what food they like, what music they like, You'll know if they won awards. You'll know their academic. And I'm like, we don't want to see that. Cause, it, and so Shelly says, well, just give us the one that's been frozen the longest. And they're like, no, it doesn't work like that. You can't do it. I got to give you the profiles. And so we, um, uh, they said, well, first thing you got to do is you got to decide ethnicity. And so um, we we chose the least selected group, which was the mixed race or the um, the the Asian Latino, whatever was the least chosen. That's what we chose. We wanted that list, and we had considered adopting from India sometime back. And so when we looked at the profiles, one of the one of the uh, ones was from India. So we put that in our. We had to select five, so we selected you know that one. And as I remember Casey, my daughter, she was looking at the papers, and I remember she goes, "Dad, I want this one." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why? And she goes, look at this dad. He's 6'2", 200. Mm-hmm. And I go, Casey, we're not buying a car, right? <laughs> or a football player. <laughs> that's right. But the point of it is that's a, that's a natural human reaction, right? You naturally, you, you just look at it. And I'm telling you right now, if the dad's short and and whatever, and the, the they're never getting selected, never. Like, wow. You got a million to choose from. Why would you choose that one? Right. Yeah. So we- wow. We, uh, we start looking at all this, um, and, and there's all these things that come out about the embryo adoption that was just crazy. Like, uh, many times you'd see donor mom, and we'd say, okay, what's that? And it would be, well, this is a woman that came to the clinic, donated her eggs for families to do this. But the problem was they were all, like, 21, 22. And so we're like, well, why is that? Well, they were paying them $10,000 an egg yes. or 5000 an egg or whatever. So they had all these kids, you know. And uh, so anyway, we select our five profiles, and uh, one of the reasons why we chose... Um, The Indian profile that we did, the mom was older. I think she was 36 or so when she did in vitro. Um, She was like, uh, so our daughter was like 20 times more likely to have Down syndrome than a normal child. And so, which still the odds are low, but 20 times more like a normal, like Shelly and I said, who's going to pick that? I mean, you've got a million to choose from. Why would you pick one that's 20 times more likely for Downs? So we were like, yeah, that's going to be a good fit for us. And, and a lot of the, the Indian families are a little shorter and whatever. And we're like, so they're not going to get slick. So But we picked we, from five um, profiles that we selected. The family from India was the only one available. We're like, perfect. And they said, you got to pick a backup in case those don't take. We picked five more, one being from India. That one was the only one available. So we're like, okay, God's involved in this. This is good, right? And so uh, we chose three. We had them put three in. So um, they put three into Shelly. And uh, I know, I know, I, what in the world, um, but, uh, but uh, one and, took. and you were
0: tired at this point. You
1: ain't kidding, no. <laughs> you ain't kidding. And, and one took, um, and, and uh, you know, we get asked about this a lot. This is interesting, and I think it's interesting for the church to hear this. You know, when, when adoption in general, it, we don't wanna walk on eggshells with people, but we do need to be sensitive to people with their adoptions, right? And uh, like, for example, this, this isn't a big deal with me, but it is with summed up families. They'll say, "Well, your kids are what age?" Well, no, they're all my kids, mm-hmm. right? Because we try not to distinguish. So I have step
0: kids, and it's the same thing, right?
1: It they're is. all my kids. I love them all. Right. I mean, like all equal. I remember I was telling my my uh, kids this. I had to talk with them just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, listen, if something happened to you, I would cry just as bad as if it happened to Casey. Yeah. We don't introduce ours. They're all kids. This
0: right. is our kids.
1: That's right. Yeah. And so with our three that we adopted um, that they put into Shelly, I mean, we've had people in church, not, not here, but we've had people in church actually say, well, I bet you're glad that only one took. Hmm. And I'm like, no, those were lives those were lives. Those were children that were frozen, but they were still lives. And so no, we wanted all three to survive. And so, uh, but one did cat did. And, uh, so cat was born. Now here's what's interesting. You'll love this. When cat was born, the doctor is holding the bloody newborn. And I leaned forward and I said, is this the first time you've delivered a four-year-old and she looked up at me, she goes, what? <laughs> I said, oh, never mind. just keep working. <laughs> and the next day the nurse came in and she looked at my wife, she goes, what did he mean four-year-old newborn? And my wife goes, well, Kat had been frozen for three years. Wow. So she was frozen three years, that alive in a chamber. Yeah, She spent one year with my wife. The day she was born, she was four. So every year we do two cakes uh, for her birthday party. We have one that says happy birthday and we have one that says happy Earth Day. So we just celebrated her birthday this week and we had a four-year cake and an eight-year cake. That's crazy. A birthday and an Earth Day. Because really, she's eight. Yeah. she has been on this earth alive for eight years. Yep. God recognized her as a life eight years ago. And we recognize her as a life eight years ago.
0: That's awesome, brother.
1: Birthday, Earth Day. Um, and we celebrate that. And we talk to the kids about that. And we talk to kids about their story. And, you know, what's really interesting is she still has two siblings that are frozen. So um, we actually did approach... The, the agency to see if we could adopt them. Shelly's gonna to try to deliver them. I can't imagine what life would be like with two more kids, but we did approach. Um, she's actually aged out. So there's a, there's a contractual agreement. You won't do it after 45. It helps the parents be willing to put their mm-hmm. children up for adoption. So um, my son and his wife actually have said they are considering, possibly, trying to deliver cats to siblings. Now, if they do it, my son will call his child his son and brother or daughter and sister. My family wow. tree has going That's a country music song. It is. Yeah, How cool is that? That's right? a country music song. Uh so yeah, so frozen embryo adoption is something that I I really hey, let me, think let me stop fascinated. you for a second.
0: Yeah. So so we got some people out here listening and maybe this is something that interests them. Can they call you?
1: Absolutely. I would love families to call us about this, Any anything. I mean, we would love to help families with this. And uh, the National Embryo Donation Center is amazing. Um, I definitely uh, would recommend them to anybody. Can you do this again with me? Oh, yeah.
0: Because we haven't even gone gone to what you personally struggle with and, and yeah. talked about that at all. Yeah. So here, here's what I'm going to put a wrap on this for today. Um Never have I not talked so – have I ever talked so little – and some of it is just outright astonishment. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're kind of scratching the surface of a miracle working God. Of um I I, I would say as a as a personal believer and, and some of the stuff our staff is going through that, that what is unseen is more real than what is seen, and starting to maybe scratch a little bit of that surface. And this just this just echoes every bit of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And thank you. Thank you for sharing it. I don't know when I've met someone with so much passion (laughs) about life in general,
1: uh,
0: as you have, and it's contagious. Yeah. It's contagious. Yeah.
1: How often do you speak in a church, man? Oh, every now and then. I mean, it it depends, you know, every now and then, but I mean to speak at high schools and such, but, uh, you know, if, if I ever work at a church, uh, well, kids pastors for 10 years, but that was part time. But, uh, you know, if, if you'd let me, I, I, the way I would wrap it, I, I get asked a lot, people always say, well, you probably think we should adopt, don't you? And I think it's a great question for people in the church. Like, people say that to me all the time. They'll say, so you think everyone should adopt? And I want to say this clearly, no is the answer to that. Number one, you don't want to do it unless God's really pulling you to do it. It's very difficult. But two, as a husband and wife, y- if you are not in agreement you cannot do this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you can destroy your marriage in a heartbeat doing adoption, not in agreement. Okay. Um, but I do think that everyone in the church can play a part in this somehow. All right. And, uh, you know, I, I want to, I want to give you a quote. I, I actually, uh, I want to read this to you if it's okay. Just mm-hmm. real quick. Just a great little quote. We were, when we were in Uganda, we were at the, uh, the former, uh, pastor. Uh, he was, a uh, head of Compassion Uganda's house. And I was talking to him about all this. And uh, when, when uh, we were talking about all this with uh, just the struggle of poverty and kids and adoption, just all this stuff, he said this line to me. And as soon as he said, I said, wait a minute, I got to type this. And so I typed it and uh, I want to read to you word to word what he said. He said, being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten by everybody. I think that is a much greater hunger, a much greater poverty than the person with nothing to eat. You know, at Choctaw Road, what do we say all the time? What do we say all the time? We say we we are built for relationships, first and foremost, God, and then with each other. And the quality of our life is dependent upon those relationships. And and I will tell you, I'm not saying everyone should adopt, okay? But I will say, maybe not adopt in the sense we did, but we should be adopting someone. Do something. Do something. That's right. Because you think about that, how many people do we know that are unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten every day? And we can see a picture of a kid dying on that TV and be like, "Oh my gosh, can I give some money to that?" Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a much greater poverty, a much greater poverty than the person who has nothing to eat.' the person who has no one who loves them. Yeah, no cares one. For them. No one. And
0: I mean, that, there's, there's a psalm that says that. There's a verse in the psalm that says, "No one cared for my soul." I'll have to look that up because you, you sparked that in me then. There we
1: so I, I think that's a great challenge, not only for Choctaw Road, but anyone who watches this from whatever church. Um, we, we should all find someone and invest something in those lives. That, that is the spirit of adoption. That's what Christ did for us, right? I mean, right. Uh, we were nothing. We're still nothing, right? And for some reason, uh, he loved us and brought us out of it.
0: Thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you a lot. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, for tuning in and and taking this journey with us. And, you know, some of these we have fun on. uh, Some of these we get a little tearful on. Some of these we are challenged on. And I don't know if there's ever been a bigger challenge than uh, the one Chad brought us today. Thank you, brother.
1: Sir, thank you. Thank
0: you, guys, for tuning in today.